This podcast was recorded on June 4th, 2020. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or of its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. All right, welcome to the Sherman Show. I'm Jeff Sherman here with my co-host Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And we are broadcasting from uh, Los Angeles on day 77 of Work From Home, uh, putting out our weekly podcast here. We thought it would be appropriate, given that we just had a month in, uh, to bring on Mr. Jeff Mayberry back to discuss the May market roundup. So welcome back, Jeff. Thanks. It's good to be here. Yeah, so um, we figured if it's May, Mayberry, good time for a May roundup. So um, before we do that, let's have Sam go through and give us uh, the market recap. What happened in the month of May? Briefly, let's talk about some of the nuances there, and then we'll talk about economic data and what it all means. So, uh, Sam, kick us off. All right. So, bringing in the market roundup, I'm going to take it through the end of May, May 31st, 2020. So, month to date on the S&P 500, we're up 4.5 percent, down about 5 percent uh, through the year. For the Barclays aggregate, up 50 basis points month to date, up five and a half percent. Gold, and a half percent, fourteen of the year. LME copper up 3.6 and down 13 percent respectively. And moving on to WTI front month futures up 88 percent month to date, down 42 percent still on the year. So a pretty positive month uh, in May in terms of performance across these various. Uh, assets that we take a look at. When we move on to the uh, sovereign space on a 10-year yield basis, uh, again, looking at the month, you know, month end of May, and I'm going to contrast it to the month end of April to see how we've moved. Uh, we closed out May on the 10-year Treasury at 65 basis points after having begun at 64, so it was up a basis point. Uh, as we noted throughout the the month, we saw that there wasn't much movement even in between uh, you know the various days. But as I look at the screen today, it looks like it's right around 80 basis points. So we have had a significant uh, 15 basis point move, uh, albeit you know in, in these short few days of the month so far. Yeah, I think that's been it's been that weakness in the Treasury market has been there uh, all week. So uh, in the homonyms there week and week. Uh, but it has been a very weak uh, week inside of treasuries. That's hard to say. Uh, but what you what we've seen there too, it's really been the back end of the curve. And so all this talk about yield curve control so far from the Fed, and, and we'll get we'll hear from the Fed next week with the FOMC. Um, but uh, so far, the target has been talking about the front end of the curve, and so the front end's been pretty well nailed down. Uh, it's been pinned down like in a wrestling match. You know, it's just been hanging there around 20 base points on the two year. And I think the Fed's giving forward guidance and the likes, but 
there's really nothing there to kind of support the back end ever since the 20-year issuance came out too. And again, I don't blame the 20-year for rates selling off, but I think that the natural uh, direction here, especially with all these risk rallies, is for treasuries to continue some of their weakness. And we're seeing that in the long bond too, SAM. You're about 160 on the long bond today. So um, definitely we broke through some of those critical levels again. Again, I'm not too concerned about duration in the short term, but uh, definitely something has changed in the treasury market where it was very quiescent for a while. Now we're starting to see some movements. Yeah, we're seeing some of that old corroboration too against the risk assets, even just on the short uh, for you know month-to-date basis right now. If you look at the S&P 500 month-to-date through June, uh, it's up about one one to one and a half percent. Uh, similar type story with uh, the high yield index. Um, and as it seems as you go down the in credit quality down the, the high yield index too, you're seeing more and more strength there relative to the top of the stack. So you definitely see that corroboration there uh, within risk assets um, against that uh, that move in uh, in treasuries. Well, how about the bond market? How'd the bond market do in risk assets for the month? Yeah, that's what I was saying with, uh, let's see here. Um, when we take a look at the um, the high yield index as measured by BAML here for the month of date, it was up uh, a percent or so. So yeah, yeah, okay. Story there. Well, what I've noticed too is that we've seen a lot of uh, the risk moves been there, but what really seemed to be the catalyst, I think you kind of addressed it earlier when I look at high yield as well as emerging markets, is that we've seen really a resurgence in prices from uh, the energy complex. And you mentioned oil being up about 88% last month um, from its uh, from its strange uh, price of negative $40 getting back into those mid-30s when you look at crude oil. And I think you've seen some stabilization in those names. Now, these uh, assets are trading nowhere near par. It's not that $35 or so makes these companies solvent, uh, but at least um, having more stability, not trafficking down the 20s again, um, and just having that volatility there, we've kind of stabilized prices somewhat. Uh, there is an OPEC meeting, too, where they're talking about uh, having more severe cuts to try to bring some more stability in the price of oil market. So what we've actually finally seen is some of those uh, energy complex bonds that were trading at very, very distressed levels for a period of time. Uh, they still trade at, at very high spreads, uh, but there has been a lot of movement there, which I think is, is kind of influenced some of these aggregate indices you're looking at here. Yeah, and it, I mean, we see it when we look at you know the the high yield cash pay energy spreads there. It seems like they they widened uh, to its uh, the historical highs on you know March 23rd, along with a lot of other spreads across the the high yield and corporate credit uh, indices. But it, it gapped out at 22 2,267 basis points on the spread on on its high of March 23rd. Uh, as you mentioned, it is in now. It's just a little bit over uh, a thousand basis points right now. But just to, for some more perspective, we ended the year of 2019 on December 31st with a spread on that sector of just around 650 basis points. So we are rather rather elevated still, um, but it has had marked improvement now that WTI crude oil futures are right around the 30, 35 type of range that we've seen. Yeah. And so I, I think that that's that's one thing is we've looked at performance of assets too. like typical uh, recovery. When you see a recovery in risk assets is typically the highest quality that rally the first. Then it goes to the minimum tier and the last to kind of follow on is typically the lowest credit quality. We're starting to see that really an improvement in triple C high yield. You're seeing it somewhat in triple C bank loans, uh, but what you're not seeing it in is still kind of in the CMBS market. Um, and so that's one thing when, when you look at the anatomy of a crisis, 
I think it's important to realize that you're not out of the woods really until where the focal point of the disaster is, that part of the market starts to rally. And so when we look at uh, leisure related assets within CMBS, some of the multifamily, especially in the lower quality tranches, whether that's lower quality property or just lower quality tranches um, through the securitizations, um, we haven't seen uh, really much improvement in those assets. So I think that's really when, when we can start to signal the all clear signal from a risk perspective typically is when it is that focal point that starts to rally. We saw that back in the last crisis with it being uh, the residential mortgage market. It really took until uh, late, you know, early, I'd say early 11, kind of late 10 to really start to see that improvement in the risk assets, which followed through into the marketplace. So uh, I still think that we're not seeing the all clear signal because of that one sector of the market, uh, which seems to be some of the focal point of this pandemic. And one thing to point out, too, is that those markets, especially in the securitized space, the, the data is really only updated monthly. So you don't have the the, you know, um, you don't have the daily data. You, it's very it's very much uh, much a longer time frame. And so they tend to move on a much uh, you know longer time period because the data is only updated monthly. You're waiting now for when the you say trend. data, I think you're referring to like remittance reports and, and you know, yeah. you know, the, the lease payments and everything coming through, right? That's what you're talking exactly. about monthly. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And so you want, you need to see that kind of turnaround and you need to get comfortable with where those numbers are uh, headed and where they've kind of, where they've bottomed out or, or, or topped out, I guess. And uh, so, it, so it takes a lot longer for those assets to typically, typically recover. No, that's saw a that great in the last, yeah. the last crisis also. Uh, it's a great point. So maybe with that, Sam, why don't you take us a little bit through the economic roundup and uh, you and Mr. Mayberry can kind of talk about some of the stuff we've been seeing through both the month of May since last week, the data that's come out, and then also uh, some, uh, some interesting uh, developments on the jobs front or the unemployment front this morning. Yeah, so let me do this uh, economic roundup that we have. I'll, I'll round up uh, what, some of the stuff that we've seen on the week, and I'll leave the today's uh, jobless report, uh, our initial claims report, I should say, uh, to to Mr. Mayberry there. So what we've seen so far on the uh, survey front from uh, two of the reporters, uh, reporting uh, entities there with ISM Manufacturing, uh, starting out there on the current print, we saw uh, an uptick, which is an improvement, uh, in this case, up to 43.1 for the, the most recent period versus 41.5 over prior period. Uh, and the market manufacturing data, it was it was flat, exactly flat at 39.8 current versus prior. Uh, so both of those still indicate somewhat contractionary uh, type of uh, economic environment based on those the surveys of purchasing managers. With the non-manufacturing and services front on the ISM first, we saw a also an improvement to 45.4 versus 41.8 prior period. With the market services, we saw a, a decent uh, uptick, albeit still at uh, depressed levels of 37.5 versus the prior period of 26.7. Uh, now we did have an ADP payrolls print. Uh, on Wednesday of this week. This is different than what we'll see on Friday from the BLS. Uh, this number is from the ADP tends to be a little bit more volatile as we've discussed uh, uh, previously. It also covers a smaller subset of uh, companies there. But what we saw there was an unexpected decline of uh, versus expectations there with about 2.8 million individuals losing 
uh, or taken off payroll for the, the reporting period versus an expectation of, I believe it was uh, 9 million in the change, but this is yeah, a huge, I mean, that's a huge discrepancy, right? I mean, yeah. uh, or at least a miss from the day. It's, it's a, it's a positive note. I think the market lauded that yesterday. Uh, however, um, we, you know, I think you, you've said it before, the caveat about the ADP report is that it's very noisy too, right? And so that noise um, is something that you're seeing in this data set as well, um, which it doesn't really corroborate with what we've seen from the unemployment claims throughout the month, right? That's right. Um, but the one silver lining in here is it is an improvement over the previous periods reporting of about minus uh, 20 million jobs. So, you know, what we've talked about thus far in this economic roundup is we've seen a series of improvements in the economic data. Um, again, we're just working with less than a handful of data points right now, so we have to continue to monitor these um, to see if they can uh, mark a, con a continuation or a reversal of uh, the existing trend. But also, as we've talked about before, is uh, there's been a huge moves in unemployment numbers uh, and job numbers and initial claims numbers, so we don't know how much the systems are overwhelmed. Um, I would say, at least with the payroll data from this uh, ADP, which is a private payroll processor, I would think they have a pretty good handle on the data set that they're seeing, and they don't suffer from some of the um, the problems that these government entities uh, have when, let's say, with the initial jobless claims, you have 20 million, uh, 7 or 8 million people coming in at a time trying to file for initial claims at once, as we saw at kind of the, the peak of the initial jobs uh, numbers early on in this crisis. Yeah, well, I think on that point, too, so you you, you pointed out that you have um, just kind of this very narrow data set. Well, the good news is uh, we get the official report tomorrow on the jobs report, non-farm payrolls and the like, uh, which will get the government's reporting side. So we'll see how that, that comes through. Uh, the focus, obviously, will be on what that employment rate looks like, you know, truly what the employment picture is. Uh, right now, and we're hoping to see some uh, some improvement as some people go back to work, but it may be still too early to tell because, um, you know, again, uh, it's it's still early in that reopening process. Yeah, as we're talking about uh, people um, employed and, and not employed, let's kick it off to Mr. Jeff Mayberry to talk about what we saw today from the report from the uh, insurance claims. Yeah, I was going to say that uh, you 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 gave all the uh, semi rosy numbers, and then I'm going to come out here with uh, numbers that are worse than expected, uh, or at least the the uh, continuing claims number was worse than expected. Uh, came out this morning at 21.21.5 million, um, an increase of over 600,000 from the previous week. This you can kind of back into a implied unemployment rate of of 14.8 percent, so still very very high numbers. Uh, the good the good news was the initial jobless came, claims came in at 1.88 million, uh, down from almost 2 million uh, the previous week, kind of in line with what people were estimating. Um, you all you do have the kind of um, you you do have the the pandemic assistance programs that um, were really kind of I don't want to say skewing these numbers, but make these numbers uh, a little bit more. Uh, different from the could, could be outliers from the previous numbers over the long term. So while these numbers are really high, uh, you know, versus history, uh, the trend, at least in the initial jobless claims, uh, is helping um, continuing. Yeah, what, do you have a sense, Jeff, elevated. You, Yeah, Jeff, do you know what the um, uh, the number of folks in that number is the uh, the uh, the unemployment system, this this temporary program that we've sent out? The are you talking about the continuing claims? Yes, correct on continuing side. 
Uh, yeah, it looks like uh, the number of it was t almost 30 million people um, claiming benefits and uh, for all the programs. Uh, this, but this, you have to kind of remember too that these numbers, while they came out this morning, are lagged. So right. uh, it's definitely you know from a couple weeks ago. So we would expect that as, as economies open up, as states open up, uh, as businesses open up, these numbers will get better. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty interesting to see. I mean, you, you talk about the lag, and that's, you know, again, it's, I, I point to the government aspect of collect data collection here with the, the initial jobless claim, I guess, most current, uh, they're reported for the week ending May 30th, continuing claims are a week prior to that. And then from the, uh, the, the notice that Ryan Kimmel put out today, I saw that uh, the the special claims, I guess the the PPP type claims, uh, they they're from May 16th. But yeah, all in though those special type of claims were about 10 million over that period. And and those um, just so our listeners are aware, I, I call them special. It's because for the initial, in order to qualify for unemployment um, from the state, it, it it pretty much covers W2 uh employed individuals so with the special that's that's being paid out by the the u.s government by at the federal level that is for typically the 1099 uh, individuals so business owners contractors and that was an additional 10 million albeit from may 16th but those numbers aren't included in the unemployment number because those are considered to be like transitory or temporary and that once the things open back up there'll be the forgiveness of the loan and therefore those people come back to work and that's why you see that kind of gap between something like the u3 unemployment rate and the u6 but again um we don't need to prognosticate about it when we get the data tomorrow we'll just be patient and and see how this evolves so on that front too maybe we could talk about uh, what we're seeing from the pandemic in terms of cases and the like um, how that that trend is uh, transpiring at this point. Um, the curve seems to be flattening, but maybe we can get into some of the nuance of uh, the data sets we've been looking at. Yeah, I, I can cover this one. I think that, uh, you know, if you look at the, the state of the uh, COVID-19, uh, we have 1.8 million total cases, over 104,000 deaths. So numbers that three months ago would have been uh, unbelievable. We, we've seemed to have uh, kind of taken taken or felt more a little bit more comfortable with those numbers i guess um you know you look at the trend though the u.s trend is is trending down um you know while while the numbers are noisy the uh if you kind of take a moving average that the number of confirmed cases is trending uh, downward a lot of that though is led by the uh, new york tri-state area which is um which w if we have a chart of it or if we could show a chart of it if this was an audio only uh, you can see that it's, it's really trending down. It's really broken down and looking uh, like it's going, you know, towards zero. Uh, so, you, if you exclude the uh, New York tri-state area and just focus on the U.S. Um, X, X that area, the numbers are flat. Um, maybe a little bit of an uptrend, uh, but if there is one, very minimal. So it seems like the, at least in New York, that the COVID-19 has been uh, getting under control. Um, and then across the U.S., it looks like there's a little, maybe a little bit more uh, work to do. Uh, but, you know, yeah. the, the trend is definitely better than it was, you know, in, in mid-April when. Yeah. And when you say cases, you're talking about go. new cases. It's not that things are being cured. It's just the amount of new cases there. But Correct. I think we're all we're all kind of waiting to see because this data is a little bit lagged as well. And we because the again, the the response to the covid, given how long the incubation period could be, um, it takes a couple of weeks sometimes. So I think we're still curious to see with all the activity over Memorial Day weekend and folks getting out there. And then also, you know, with the social unrest we've seen in this country 
over the last week or so. A lot of people just being in close quarters with each other. So just trying to see, you know, um, if we're going to see some stabilization there, we're going to see some downtrend the like. So something to continue to monitor there. And but, the hope but, there is at least those are mostly people who are outside. And it seems like the uh, contagious rate outside out being outside is much lower than inside. So hopefully the uh, the rate, the, the cases don't, don't bump up at least too much. Yeah, yeah no, I and agree. I think only, yeah, as we mentioned, only time will tell. But I do, uh, I do remember seeing the the chart on California as well, and it's it's, you know, we may not think about it uh, in, in this manner, but I recall seeing that the trend line for new cases here in California are actually on the rise. And you know, as someone that can't remember if it, which Jeffs it was um, that mentioned, as we were becoming more comfortable with it, it just seems like the, even without relaxation of guidelines, people are are seemingly relaxing their their efforts in terms of social distancing. And even if they are uh, wearing masks or not, it just seems like people are a little bit tighter quarters today. And it strikes well, me as interesting as well. It's like, you know, here in California, we're still, for the most part, sheltered in place. But I'll talk to some of my friends from back home in the Midwest, and they're talking about going to the bars and going to the restaurants. And, you know, the, the excitement in their voice almost makes me somewhat uh, jealous <laughs> at them going out but uh, well for, the yeah. good news is sam uh, los angeles restaurants are now going to open um the problem is is that now we have so much political or so so much uh, kind of social activity and protest every evening that it's kind of delayed that a little bit but um we are in the process of doing that so we'll, we'll see how that transpires but you said time will tell i think that's the same thing that we're seeing here in the behavior and the psychology of folks is that at some point you get you get accustomed to bad news right um, you know, we're talking about the data and all these job losses that Jeff was pointing out. And what you find is that eventually you just become numb to it. And, um, you know, I know uh, Mr. Gunlock has said before he, he compares it to kind of this, um, this series that uh, Andy Warhol did when it comes to the car crash scenes that, you know, we first saw they're horrific and he did all these screen prints on them. But as he continued to do them more and more, he becomes numb to them. And I think I, I use that uh, analogy there because I think that's what happens with the bad data. We all look for something to say, OK, well, it's not as bad as we thought it was. So we're looking to be more optimistic. It is human nature to do that. And so I think that's what you're seeing, too, as folks wanting to go back out. It's like, OK, we've tried this. It's enough. We got to try to live again. So let's try to do things differently. And I think that that's what you're seeing right now. Yeah. And um, one last point on this, I, I wanted to move on on some of the data that you've been talking about that's being provided by online service providers. But I recall sometime back in early or you know somewhere around mid-March uh, at one of the, the press conferences hold, held by uh, the White House where Dr. Fauci was asked a question in terms of uh, where he sees the, the COVID count going. And he said at the time it could be anywhere from 100,000 to 250,000. And I remember uh, someone clarified what the, the answer and said, you're talking about cases, right? Um, uh, people who are infected. And he said, no, he's talking about deaths. And at that point, the room just went silent. And I remember myself, just the, the shock in hearing the, the 100,000 deaths that were uh, even higher than that. And, you know, it's it's a change, you know, now that we've 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 crossed that that point in, in the last few days. Um, so it is, uh, you know, disturbing how we can become desensitized to these numbers over time. Um, but going on to this, uh, some of the, the data that you've been talking about of late um, with the online service providers that, you know, we can kind of get a little bit of real time, perhaps uh, data coming in in terms of people transitioning to this recovery phase and how it may not corroborate some of the uh, some of the more 
not official, but market data that we're seeing um, on the right. screens. Yeah, so what I, what Sam's referring to is our, our uh, big brother of Apple and Google who follow uh, all of our movements on our phones that we, uh, we all give them that information, that permission to do so. And so these are called the mobility indices. And so what you see is that they have, um, they have this benchmark kind of pre-COVID levels that they call the baseline, right? So this is how people were moving around. And again, I, I don't know what the numbers are. Um, but they shows how people move around uh, their various locales. And so this is they use walking, they use uh, driving as well as public transit. And so a lot of people have been optimistic point to these these um, data. And when you look through it, what you find is that they these numbers are back kind of to ba baseline or back to let's call it pre covid type of activity, both on walking as well as uh, on the driving front. Obviously, transit is still depressed, so that makes some sense um, as a lot of the transit systems aren't open uh, due to the distancing. But um, look, think about walking. OK, that's fine. Maybe more people are active. even so uh, I know my neighborhood seems to be a lot more active of people getting around and moving around, um, uh, exercising at least. But on the driving front, it says we're back to pre-crisis levels. And that's just perplexing to me when I look at it to say, OK, well, how are all these people? You know, what, what is all this looking at? So one thing we did is we looked at uh, gasoline consumption. And so gasoline consumption, um, you know, obviously, if you're driving, you have to use gasoline unless you have some of the electric cars. But what we've seen in that data set is that uh, his, uh, the last year or so in pre-COVID, what we had was about somewhere between 10 to 11 million barrels equivalent of gasoline being consumed a day. And so that's, a, I'll call that the baseline as we think about it. It dipped down significantly, got really inside of like around 5 million barrels a day. So it's roughly cut more than in half. And then what you find is that the recovery, the bounce back, even with this mobility data, what we see is the consumption's been around 6.5 million barrels equivalent of gasoline a day right now. So when we think about that, um, it just it doesn't make sense to me how the economy can be back to where it was or the driving can be there because unless the people all driving right now have electric cars or have the ability or hydrogen, they're not actually natural <laughs> gas. They're not using gasoline, uh, which just seems strange to me. Um, and so that's the thing when we think about the recovery. I think you were talking about it, Sam, juxtaposing it against financial markets where we've seen some of those V-shaped recoveries like in corporate bonds, um, definitely in the stock market, definitely in the NASDAQ for sure. Um, but we're not seeing that through the economic data set. So another thing I think about as a measure, and this is uh, the, the uh, data that Open Table shares, what we see is that we see reservations. They plummeted. Obviously, they went to minus 100% because there was no reservations out there. And they started to recover in states that have been open earlier. So leading the way from this data set we see is Texas. But Texas is still like 75% off levels from a year ago. So that's the shining star of that. The slope of that line is very, very flat. Um, you see something like California is very, very low because only very few people have been open. So it doesn't seem like the, the V-shaped recovery is plausible in the economic data. We've already dismissed that for a long period of time. The U-shape to me seems a very, very optimistic still because of how flat the, the slope of the line is coming out of this stuff. And then lastly, the thing that we think about, it, the last one I think about that we get a lot is TSA traffic. And so you, you saw the reports that TSA traffic's doubled in the last month. Okay, great. Uh, it went from down 95% to it's only down 90% over a year ago. So I think that'll be one of the, the longer regions to, or the, the 
data set that probably takes a longer period of time to recover as people just uh, skip the travel because of that close quarters. As Jeff was pointing out, not a lot of open air areas on an airplane, right? So um, you have this close quarters, and so people will likely spend some of their vacations to do transit. So I, I think if you want to watch the recovery, I think the EIA's uh, uh, gasoline demand chart is one of the best ones to think about because if you think about that transition from people flying to driving and staying more local, uh, that could be something, too, to look for, um, for at least to get us back to something around pre-COVID levels. And remember, this is the driving season. This is the vacation season when kids have historically been out of school. And so this is where we'd expect to see that seasonality uptick anyway. Well, there's one, one uh, news item that came out this morning, and that's American Airlines. Uh, they are planning to fly, or, or I guess in May, they flew 20% of their, of their flights uh, from a year earlier. And now they're planning to fly 55% of their flights, but that's in July. Uh, right. So, you know, even in July, they're really only, you know, barely over half of what they flew the year before. So that just that, that just shows how much they're planning to have air travel be um, at very depressed levels for an extended period of time. Yeah, yeah, well, I know I'm participating in that. I'm taking a flight tomorrow, so I'm one of the few people doing that. But um you know, that being said, uh, I think that what you find is that people will be a little more reticent to to uh, to jump on that airplane until they at least get over this fear of the contagion and the virus itself. So um, what we'll have to continue to look there. I saw like all the airlines jump massively in the stock market today based on that news, too. So that, that's a good data point. It is a good data point. It'll also be interesting to see if some of the measures that these airline companies have proposed in terms of reduce or trying to reduce the amount the density within the planes themselves without changing the seat configurations but instead you know they've talked about perhaps eliminating the middle seat uh for for the bulk of of the plane we'll see you know you have to let us know if that's the case tomorrow but even then it could just be because of the depressed uh, interest in flying tomorrow on that flight because yeah, as you well, mentioned too you've been delayed a few times now right uh, over the right, course yeah, of the, the day it's been it's been rerouted it's been delayed it's been changed around so i mean look it, it is what it is if you need to get somewhere and you got to do it you'll you'll make the sacrifice to do so but uh, definitely they're trying to stay alive in this business and uh, when you think about it too especially with the cost of tickets right now it's going to be very challenging for that uh, that industry to survive uh, so this is what we've been talking about, liquidity versus solvency, right? Liquidity can keep you afloat for a while. And uh, I don't think we have the time to talk about the zombie companies. Maybe we'll pick that up next week. But really, I think what, what you find is that um, they're just trying to continue to provide the service so that way they don't completely go out of business. Yeah, it's the revolving door type of uh, concept there. When you're just, uh, yeah, at some point you need to, you probably need to exit that uh, revolving door. Otherwise, you're going to get dizzy and collapse yourself, right? So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, let's let's move on to let's talk about some of the support. We're talking about airlines. There's been the kind of perception of bailouts and the like. Um, can Jeff, can you give us an update on uh, what's going on with the government programs? You know, uh, the update on like the corporate bond programs and TALF and the likes out there. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, back uh, when when the Fed kind of stepped into the markets and uh, put together what, what we've called the alphabet soup of programs, TALF and PMCCF and SMCCF, uh, really only the uh, SMCCF, the secondary market, what I don't even remember what the CCF stands Corporate for. Corporate credit facility. Corporate credit facility. And then at the PM is the primary. Uh, there, the uh we saw estimates that in the SMCCF, there's been $3 billion worth of ETFs purchased 
uh, through that's through uh, May 28th, the most recent report we've had. Uh, that's all the ETFs in uh, investment grade and in high yield uh, that breakdown or or if we say 1.6, what we know is uh, 1.6 billion was purchased between uh, May 12th when it launched and May 18th. Uh, so that the three billion is an estimate of of that continued purchases for another ten days, um, but of that one point six billion, one point three two billion was an in investment grade, and two hundred sixty one million uh, was in high yield. Of that two hundred sixty one million in high yield, uh, eleven million of that was in a, a fallen angel ETF. And so, uh, to take to take kind of to backtrack that, that's the only um, purchases or only only dollars that have been spent out of these uh, alphabet soup of plans. Uh, with the PMCCF being at zero, at no uh, no issuance yet, uh, no indication of when that's going to start. Really, the the uh, and we'll we will get into this in a second, I'm sure. Uh, but the given that where the uh, investment grade corporate bond issuance is or has been over the past couple of months, it doesn't seem like the PMCCF is actually it may not actually be needed at this point in time. And TELF uh, is going to start in under two weeks now. So the first subscription on that is going to be on June 17th. Well, uh, yeah, let, let me cut you off there because you sure. talked about the primary market credit facility, um, corporate credit facility. And so there's been zero interest. Not one company has come to there to have the Fed buy those bonds or the, I'm sorry, not the Fed, but the, you know, the entity that's being ran by the Fed to the liquidity facility so they don't explicitly break the law. But what you see in there is that there's been zero demand because one of the clauses that you have to substantiate that one, you were able, you could not tap the market and the market's been liquid ever since, or at least there's been a, at least in the last month and a half or so, there's been a, a significant amount of liquidity in the market. But what also you have to do is it has to be disclosed at what price you did it, how much you did it, and your name's out there. And so it's one of those where I think there's a stigma associated with it. You don't want to be the only one come into the market. It's reminiscent of what we saw in the financial crisis where, uh, if you if you remember, um, when they gave out the, the initial loans, they gave it to all the banks, right? Everybody was required to take, you know, um, all these loans from the Fed because they didn't want it to be like, oh, Lehman's in trouble or someone's in trouble. They wanted to make sure that everybody was in the same boat together. And so I think there's some of that, but also uh, the idea that you have to prove or substantiate that you uh, tried to go to other sources of the market is a challenge. And also there's some uh, penalties associated with it with dividends and the like of what you can do subsequent to that. So I think it's just, this has been jawboning really. Uh, the Fed just jawboning, setting up these facilities has been extremely successful in getting the risk appetite back and getting people back in the market. But let's put that in context. So, you know, we talk about $3 billion. That's a lot of money, right? It's real money. It's a lot of assets, a lot to put to work. But in the context of the size of the aggregate markets, it's not even a blip on the radar. Yeah. And then when we take a look at that, I mean, you can really see that, uh, you know, see that within looking at the ETFs that the manager of the SMCCF uh, purchased in, in the universe of, uh, of ETFs. Um, so when you look at the IG space, there were nine ETFs that they have selected from at this point. I think part of that is based on a lot of that's based on the eligibility requirements that are are placed on the amount of uh, liquidity that you have within those ETFs, what the AUM threshold is, how much trades on a daily basis, as well 
as um, you know whether or not it's at a premium because they don't want people or the the manager buying it at a um, premium to to NAV on that point. But when you look at across those nine IG investment grade ETFs, the the total AUM at this point is about 150 billion dollars. Uh, of which they can purchase a max of 20%. So that puts it at $30 billion max uh, footprint uh, potentially spent within this program just for the IG. The numbers are reduced on the high yield portion where there are seven ET six ETFs that were, were selected from. Um, as Jeff noted, only one of those was a Fallen Angel ETF, which was, I believe, the intent for what they said when they, they meaning the Fed, initially said that they can buy um, into the high yield market, but largely uh, through just those that were previous to uh, March 22nd, I believe, that were investment grade and then had been downgraded into high yield territory. But of those six high yield ETFs, the aggregate AUM on those were just over 50 billion uh, with a max 20% eligibility for, for um, uh, purchasing at just 10 billion. So that 10 billion and 30 billion is the max across those ETFs that you can buy in aggregate. Yeah, I mean, and, and so still in the context of the market, you know, um, the IG market issuance has been, you know, a, a trillion dollars already uh, in that issuance this year. So when you talk about three billion, even though some of that was <laughs> deployed in high yield, the, the context is just completely lost, right? So um, the impact of, of the Fed's purchases aren't really that big. And so why I point that out is that a lot of people have spewed the mantra in Fed we trust, right? The reason for buying these assets is that the Fed has your back. Don't worry about downgrades. Don't worry about defaults. Um, they can't happen because you have this backstop. Well, so far that backstop has been extremely light um, relative to the context of what's been put out in the marketplace. And so when you take the aggregate IG market, high yield market, and loan market in the U.S., the numbers come out to a roughly around $10 trillion. And so the, the fact that the Fed has your back by buying $3 billion across these sectors doesn't really instill a lot of confidence. Now, the, you know, Jerome has said himself that you know, they can do unlimited QE. There's no stop to it. But technically, QE is not these programs. These are liquidity programs. QE is Treasuries, Agency MBS, and Agency CMBS today. And so until they change that idea, it's there. So I think that that's the reason we've been very cautious on this space is that we know that there's, un, uh, as we talked about, un, ongoing uncertainty in the economy. On top of that, you know, when will we get going back together to actually get earnings and, and things at levels that, that allow serviceability of this debt? And then also, if the rates agencies continue to continue their downgrade behavior, does that change some dynamic of who can own those securities as well? So uh, one thing that um, we've been talking about for many, many weeks now, we've done that with some of our portfolio managers on the, in this forum, is talking about the differences between things that have Fed support and don't. But the idea of having support, you know, it's one thing to say that, hey, we're going to backstop the market. It's another thing to say we're going to do we're going to backstop one one thousandth of a basis point of the overall market, right? So <laughs> I think just saying that you're going to do something versus the amount of action you can actually have behind it is very important to really think about uh, when you're trying to think about capital. And you, you know, you talked about spreads at the beginning, Sam. I mean, today, um, you know, you talked as uh, so in the month end, but today spreads are roughly about 155, 58, depends on which OAS index you're using um, on IG, which is back to kind of almost, you know, early March levels, 
right? So it's like the default risk isn't even really being priced in well out there. And so uh, to me, these assets look extremely overvalued as a sector of the market, as an asset class um, for this reason. Yeah, and I think uh, what it does come down to, and you pointed out a lot of information out there, it's just perhaps even though you know, it's a drop in the bucket based on what the Fed has proposed or has said it's going to do uh, versus the context of the market, it's just the idea of that backstop being there, giving some support to the markets. Because as you mentioned, I mean, a trillion dollars on the gross issuance basis year to date through the first five months of the year is, is pretty uh, significant uh, yeah. if you look at in the context of the previous you know, a few years here. And even on a net supply basis uh, in terms of issuance, it's still a very high number. So it, it remains to be seen that this how long this revolving door can continue to spend, uh, spin, sorry, not spend, spend and spin, I suppose. Seems like, you know, every day we have our, our meeting and there's, you know, nine to 12 new issues in investment grade. And, you know, while the, and, and while the spreads may be uh, at higher levels than they were pre-COVID, uh, when you look at where the treasury curve is, you know, it's down, you know, 100-ish basis points or so across the curve. And so your absolute yield levels are actually very, very low. And so it makes sense that if you're a corporate CFO, you should be trying to take advantage of these low absolute yields as much as you possibly can. And it seems like that's yeah. what we see in the market. <laughs> yeah, I can't fault them for it. No, definitely. Right. So, and they're oversubscribed uh, too, right? I mean, the 9 to right. 12, the 10 issues, 11 issues a day oversubscribed. And I imagine the spread is going to continue to grind in, you know, maybe at a slower pace, but it is. it seems to be grinding in as we've noticed. Yeah, well, people need to put money to work. Um, and, you know, a lot of people follow momentum as well. And so they've seen improvement in asset prices. And so, um, you know, they start to look at it. They, you do the beauty contest across sectors and you're seeing that kind of pool risk assets in general because you're saying, OK, uh, if corporate bonds give me a two and a half yield, um, if you're lucky uh, on those things, and some of those are longer duration assets to get there, um, then maybe I should be looking for something else that gives me, you know, some some more kick. And so on that note, um, uh, Jeff, can you talk about what we've seen as developments in the securitized space? We are talking about CMBS before, but maybe you can focus on the resi market, the residential mortgage market, and what we're seeing as uh, kind of like the forbearance data, how that has been uh, moving on. Yeah, I mean, as, as we mentioned earlier, because the data only comes out once a month, I know you uh, had a podcast with Ken Shinoda earlier in uh, May, and so that data has come out subsequent to that podcast, and it looks like the uh, forbearance numbers are coming in better than people were expecting. Uh, still, still at high relative levels, uh, but better than where uh, I guess the the bad projections were. Um, it looks like 12% of Ginny Mays, which tend to be the worst uh, credit quality borrowers, are in forbearance. 6% in Fannie and Freddie, and then you know so-called other, which is everything that everything else obviously is uh, is 10%. So those numbers. Uh, the request the request for forbearance has also dropped over time. Um, or, you know, we have a weekly weekly uh, weekly call or survey from the MBA that shows just the trend is going much lower um, every single week. And so, you know, back in the end of May, I mean, the end of March, early April, uh, the numbers were very high. Um, they've come down to you know inside of 50 basis points across all all cohort cohorts. Uh, over the past, at the end, kind of towards the end of May. So those numbers, uh, while still elevated, uh, are much better than people were uh, fearing they would be um, from from that perspective. Yeah, and, and again, and CMB, it's still it's it's still early to tell, but you know that incremental demand for forbearance. So it's not just saying the forbearance is diminished. You're talking about 
incremental people pl- applying for it for bands. Is that correct? That's that's right. That's right. So people who are inquiring about what do I I can't make my payment. What do I need to do? Because those number, you know, the positive side of if those numbers are going down, then you would expect the people who are delinquent on their payments would be going down even more than than those numbers would imply. Yeah. Okay, well, I think that's a good summary here. We are about 45 minutes in. And uh, Jeff, you know, before we leave, uh, we got to introduce you to Sam's favorite part of the show. Uh, but since we have um, Sam on here talking today, uh, I want to subject him to some of that Sherman says as well. So, uh, Sam, why don't you kick us off and introduce our guest uh, host of the uh, prompts for today? Yeah, and you must be talking about my favorite part of the show, which is uh, Sherman says. So with that, uh, we'll be tagging in uh, someone from our team, Mr. Mark Kimbrough, who, him, who himself is a repeat guest on on this segment as we start to take this on a weekly basis, especially as we bring in uh, Mr. Mayberry. So uh, Mr. Kimbrough, can you step up to the plate and give us our prompts for Sherman Says? And gentlemen, shall we try to keep this to one word or are you guys up for that challenge? Challenge accepted. Yes. Challenge, yes. Accepted. challenge accepted. All right. All right, Mr. Lau, thanks for the introduction and thanks for having me back here. Uh, we're going to go in the order of Mr. Sherman, Mr. Lau, and Mr. Mayberry. So to kick this off, let's go with Real GDP and the CBO. Pessimistic. Reopening the economy. Early. Money market fund. Attractive. Social media. Important. Next stimulus bill. Delayed. Amusement parks. Scary. (laughs) Personal income versus wages. Doesn't matter. Temporary. Oh, sorry. It's me, but okay, it's temporary. (laughs) You know, I mean, because look, uh, you can get income without working right now, so... um, you know, it's, it's a too challenging for one word, Mr. Kimbrough, but thanks for uh, giving me the task. I know I'm giving. Yeah, that was that was a fun one. All right. It's between me and you, Mayberry. One words. Curfew. Questionable. Forbearance. Falling. Las Vegas. Depression. Car maintenance. Necessity. Mental health. Necessary. Vehicle sales. Surprising. Michael Jordan. Goat. Next round of Chinese stimulus. Um, Here. (laughs) (laughs) Cold War. Contemporaneous. Animal shelters. Overflowing. Healthcare workers. Heroes. Dine-in restaurant. Pass. <laughs> International travel. Decline. And uh, number 21 here, blackjack. Oh, oh, man, I was going to say hit me, but that's two words. 
All right, I, I guess <laughs> that's, I'll your answer. that's your answer. <laughs> so, Sam, Sam wins for the first time ever. He's won one of these contests. So uh, we'll, we'll we'll chalk that up to day seventy-seven of us being weak, Sam, uh, Jeff. So, all right, thanks everyone for joining, Mr. Mayberry. Thanks for coming back on. We appreciate the the insights, the color, the analysis. Uh, it's been very helpful. Um, tune in next week. Uh, we're going to have another guest who uh, was talking about the impending recession. Not sure he predicted uh, COVID. Uh, as the catalyst, but definitely on that front, we're going to get an update from him. I think you'll find it very interesting. So make sure you tune in next week. Uh, as always, you can catch our podcast on uh, Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and the likes. Uh, we don't have a Joe Rogan contract, but uh, we're putting up there for free on Spotify. So make sure you take advantage of that. Uh, also, um, as you, if you want to see some more data behind you, follow us on the Twitter. Uh, our handle is at Sherman Show Pod. Uh, we'll put up some charts of that uh, Jeff was discussing today, and we try to put out some content for you guys as well. So tune in next week for our special guest. It'll be an external guest, and we're going to talk more about um, where we are in the cycle of recession. So tune in next week. Thanks again. presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without express written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2020 DoubleLine Capital.